Times have changed. It used to be that in, th in this country, it was the rare individual who didn't attend church. But now, it's really the norm to uh, meet people who have never stepped a foot inside the church their entire life, who have absolutely no idea about who our God is and who Jesus is. And so let me ask you a question. Let's say you met someone, uh, perhaps our new neighbors or co-workers, or perhaps people that, that you pass by on the streets. Somehow they find out that you are Christian. And they ask you, what is a Christian? What is Christianity all about? What do you do? Now, how would you explain to them who Jesus is and what he has done? Well, let me give you a simple answer. You tell them that Jesus is the Savior and that he has rescued you. That's what you tell them. That Jesus is your Savior and that he has rescued you. And in fact, that is what Paul tells us in this passage. Paul tells us here why we needed to be rescued and why only Jesus is able to save us. Why we need to be rescued and why Jesus alone can save us. And the first thing that Paul tells us is what we are by nature. What we are by nature. Now, the reason why we read verses 1 through 10 is because in Greek, verses 1 through 10 is actually one long sentence. There's really no good way of translating that into English and still keep that structure of one sentence one single sentence. So in whatever translation you look at, it's usually broken up into several sentences. And that's fine. Uh, that's what you have to do. But in, in the Greek language, it is one long sentence. And the Greek language follows the typical conventions of uh, every language. If you think about a sentence, at its most basic level, a sentence has the subject, it has the verb, and it has the object. So think about the sentence, God loves sinners. God is the subject, the person doing something. Loves, that's the verb, that's what God is doing. Sinners is the object, uh, the one who receives the benefit of the action that is performed by the subject. God loves sinners. And so in English, the word order is typically that, subject, verb, and object. But the Greek language is a very flexible language. It allows you to vary the word order and to do that for the sake of emphasis. And so what Paul does in this passage is that in verses 1 through 3, he gives us the object of the sentence to tell us just what sort of people God saves. So verses 1, and th 1 through 3, it's, it's all about describing the condition of the people that God saves. And that's the emphasis that Paul is making. You, this is the kind of people that God saves. 
And Paul tells us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So the spiritual condition of the Ephesians without Jesus was a tragic irony. They were alive to sin if we count being in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil being alive. But that was their condition. They were alive to sin, but they were dead with respect to the true life because they were alienated from the author of life. They were dead spiritually before God. So that, is the, that was the condition of the Ephesians without Jesus. But notice that Paul says more. Paul says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So notice Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and then he changes the pronoun. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So what Paul is saying is this. Not only the Gentiles who lived in superstition and paganism, but also the Jews who were raised in the right religion had the same spiritual reality of being spiritually dead before God. And so Paul says, they were all, we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if you look at verses 1 through 3, you realize that in verses 1 through 3, in three verses, Paul summarizes what he teaches in the first three chapters of his letter to the Romans. Do you remember the book of Romans, how the first three chapters progress? It talks about how both the Jew and the Gentiles have sinned. The Jews, having received the scriptures, refuse to live according to the scriptures. The Gentiles refuse to live according to the light that God has implanted in their hearts. And so both Jew and the Gentiles have fallen. And so Romans chapters 1 through 3 concludes like this in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, not just the pagans who live scandalous, messy lives, but the respectable people religious people, both the Jew and the Gentile, they are all, without Christ, the children of wrath. And this brings us to a very difficult subject, a very hard-to-hear subject, and that is God's wrath. God's wrath. You know, today, many people resist the idea of God's wrath, and they prefer rather only to hear about God's love. But you know, God's love has no meaning apart from the fact that God loves people who deserve wrath. 
That is to say, if you take out wrath, if you deny wrath, you are not just denying God's wrath, you're also denying God's love. You empty the love of God of its meaning. And that is why Christianity without judgment and God without wrath is simply being dishonest to the Bible. And you know, it is cruel. It is cruel to tell people that that God can be Can I put it this way? It's cruel to tell people that you can ignore God, that you can mess with God, that God can be trifled with. It's cruel to tell people that God is not the holy God who burns with wrath against sin. It's cruel to tell people that you don't need Jesus to save you. Yes, it is a difficult to hear subject, the wrath of God, but we have to acknowledge it. We have to receive it because That is what the scripture says, and that is what God himself says, that we, because of our sin, we are by nature children of wrath. Now, what is nature? It's the Greek word phusis. And let me explain what nature is. Nature is what we are at our core. Nature is that that fundamental essence of our being without which we would no longer be what we are. Let me give you some examples. The nature of light is to illuminate. And if light does not illuminate, can you call that light? No, the nature of light is to shine and to illuminate. And if light does not do that, it is in no meaningful sense light anymore. Or think about it this way. The nature of the wind is to blow. And if the wind does not blow, it is, it, is it in any sense still wind? It isn't, is it? And so nature is what makes you you. It is your core essence, what defines you, that without which you are no longer what you are. And so when Paul tells us that we are by nature children of wrath, what he tells us is something very important. He means that sin, sin is not just momentary lapse of judgment, and sin is not some uncharacteristic deviation from our true selves. You know, you see the time to time, don't you? Um, Somebody was caught doing something terrible, and with crocodile tears, they say, you know, that's not me. <laughs> you know, I'm not that person. But you are. You see? Sin is not a, an occasional lapse of judgment. Sin is not some, some extraordinary deviation from what we truly are. But rather, sin... And this is the tragedy. God created man, male and female, and he said, very good, but we have rebelled. And through the rebellion of Adam, in Adam, we have fallen. And the creatures that God, about whom God once said, very good, we have fallen in sin, so that we are now, 
by nature, sinful. Sin is rooted in the heart of the fallen man. And God's response to it is wrath. Now, God's wrath is not bad temper. And God's wrath is not temper tantrum the way that our wrath often is. God's wrath is his holy response to evil. And what Paul tells us is this, because we are by nature through and through sinful, God's wrath is what we deserve by nature. So that's the first thing that Paul tells us. The second thing that Paul tells us is what we gain by grace, what we gain by grace. And Paul, he introduces the subject of the sentence with two beautiful words. Remember, verses 1 and one through 3, Paul described the object, the sinners that we are. And in verse 4, he introduces the subject of the sentence with the two most beautiful words. But God. But God. We are sinners deserving wrath, but God has acted contrary to what we deserve. And Paul uses here three verbs to describe what God has done and four reasons why God did what he did. And so starting with verse 5, Paul tells us, when even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the first verb, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the first verb. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And second verb, God raised us up with him. And the third verb, God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in terms of the structure of the sentence, objects, subject, and verbs, three verbs. What did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. By nature, we were spiritually dead. That's who we were. But God made us alive with Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, he raised us from the dead to a new life. And we as sinners, we deserve the dungeon. But did you notice what God did? Instead of the dungeons that we deserve, God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, instead of giving us the dungeons that we deserve, God gave us the throne of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. And you see, you need to see, we need to see that being saved from God's wrath owes nothing to us. Look at verse 5. 
By grace you have been saved. Grace is the cure for our nature. And to help us to understand that, Paul tells us four things that motivated God to save us. Verse 4, but God, here's the first motivation, but God, one, being rich in mercy. That's what, why God saved you, because God is rich in mercy. Two, God saved you because of the great love with which he loved us. That's why he saved you. The great, he loved you with a great love. And then verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the third motivation, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Rich in mercy, great love, immeasurable riches of, of his grace, and four, in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, why did God save sinners? Why does God save sinners? It has nothing to do with what we offer up to God. God saves sinners because, one, He is rich in mercy. Because of His great love, because of the immeasurable riches of His grace, and because of the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so do you see, do you see why we must be rescued and why only Jesus can rescue us? We need to be rescued because we are spiritually dead. And being spiritually dead, we are equally incapable and unwilling to love God. And only Jesus can rescue us. And God gives grace and mercy to sinners only through the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The fact that we were spiritually dead, that's why we need to be rescued. Because there's nothing that we can do, nothing that we can offer up to God by which we can say, now I deserve it. And because God offers His grace and mercy only through the crucified and risen Jesus, only Jesus can rescue us. Now think about this. Paul, as a Jew, he greatly admired Abraham, the father of faith, the man that God called his friend. And Paul, as an Orthodox Jew, he greatly revered Moses, the greatest prophet that has ever lived, the only prophet who, has, uh, who had a face-to-face -face conversations with God. But Paul knew that not even Abraham and not even Moses could save sinners from God's wrath. If so, I mean, do you see the futility of relying on Muhammad as the Muslims do to save you? Do you see the futility of relying on Joseph Smith as the Mormons do? If neither Abraham nor Moses could save you from your sins, what sense does it make to look at other people to save you? It's only the crucified and risen Jesus who can raise the dead. 
And it's the crucified and risen Jesus that can make slaves of sins to be sons and daughters of God. By God's grace, we have gained Jesus. So first, what we are by nature, objects of wrath, what we gain by grace, we have gained Jesus. And thirdly and finally, the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace. Uh, We began this morning with me asking you a question. How would you explain who Jesus is and what he has done for you? He is the Savior and he has rescued me. You know, the more I think about it, however, I, I think that we almost find it easy to tell other people who Jesus is and what he has done. But sometimes we struggle to hear ourselves what Jesus has done and who he is. We struggle to tell our own souls about who Jesus is and what he has done. We are constantly compiling a list of reasons why God cannot possibly love us. This is only the first week of the new year. I bet you had some New Year's resolutions, and I bet you broke some of them already. You know, isn't it so funny how weak we are? And we keep track, don't we, of our failures. And we say to ourselves, look what a mess I am. Look what a miserable sinner that I am. Look what I did. Look what happened. How can God possibly love me? The flip side of that is when you think it's because of the terrible things that I have done, God cannot possibly love me. The flip side of that is you begin to think, if I can just do something good, then God will love me. And we're not just making a list of the bad things we have done that convince us that God can possibly love us, but we are also making a list of the so-called good things we think we have done so that we can finally tell God, see God, I did it. See God, I deserve it. But do you see something about God's nature here? Do you see something about God's fusis? nature. You see, it is in God's nature to be rich in mercy to every person who turns to Jesus with faith and repentance. That's God's nature. It is the very defining essence of God to love with a great love. God doesn't do small love. God doesn't do weak love. It is the very defining essence of God to love with a great love precisely those who deserve His wrath 
when they join themselves by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, this is what Paul said. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul thinks about how God raised his son Jesus from the dead and he calls that power immeasurable greatness of power. And now in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul uses the same word. If the resurrection of Jesus is God's unmeasurable, immeasurable, unlimited power, undoing Satan's work, rescuing sinners, giving them grace and glory. It is the same immeasurable greatness, the riches of His grace that He has in store for us in eternity, Paul says. So do not think, do not think that your sins make you undeserving of grace and that you cannot possibly have peace with God. Now, it is true so far as it goes that you are undeserving. It is true. But it is also misleading because it is not the whole truth. Yes, you and I, we are undeserving of grace. But God loves you in Christ Because that's who he is. And the fact that he has saved an undeserving sinner as you, it does not mean that you are a fraud who does not belong in God's kingdom. The fact that he has saved an undeserving sinner as you, it rather means that is immeasurably rich grace for you will be the wonder of ages for his glory and for your joy for eternity. That's what it means. Because, you know, grace, you know, grace is just a word. It's just the word if it is detached from Jesus. And grace is just the word if we do not see how infinitely great it is. And as long as grace is just the word, we can talk about grace till we are blue in the face. Grace this, grace that. But it will not give you an ounce of comfort before God. Grace detached from Jesus. Grace, as long as it remains some vague idea, it's just not enough. But once we see that Jesus is God's grace to us, and once we see that the love and the kindness of God in Jesus are immeasurable, then 
then that is healing balm for our weary souls and our burdened hearts. So let me ask you again, who is Jesus and what has he done? Loved ones, would you say it to yourself over and over until the truth finally sinks in? Say to your heart, Jesus is my Savior. He has rescued me. Yes, I don't deserve it. But it does not mean that I'm a fraud in God's kingdom. I don't deserve it, but Jesus saved me. That means his immeasurable riches will be the wonder of ages for eternity. Who is Jesus and what has he done for you? Say it and say it again. Keep saying it until it sinks in. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and who rose, and in whose death and resurrection we too have been raised, and we too have been seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you do not love us with a small, weak love. And indeed, you do not know how to love us with small love. But you love us with a deep, immeasurable, great love. And so we have comfort, we have peace, and we have assurance. So, Father, I pray for the saints that are in this room, that the immeasurable riches of your grace would grip their hearts and let them see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their Savior, who is their grace. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.